You're listening to the Real Estate Investing Podcast with Dante Belmonte, here to help you start or continue your journey in real estate. Each episode, we bring you a different expert real estate investor who will share the secrets to their success so you can learn and benefit from their experience. Let's jump right into it. All right, guys, welcome to the Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Today, we have Richard Garcia as our guest. Richard, would you like to introduce yourself? Dante, thanks for having me, man. I, uh, yeah, so guys, I am a real estate investor. I was a former stock trader from 2008 to about 2011. And then I got into real estate in the height of when things started to evolve and, and increase in value from the downturn, the, the housing crash. So in 2010 to 2011, I bought my first real estate deal. I did some creative strategies around that time. And then uh, just, you know, embarked on the rest of my journey. Now I'm about almost $7 million worth of a real estate portfolio. It's all long-term passive investments and they sustain my, my life. My, I have three kids. I have a wife. We live in a, a different country and, you know, it's been officially now a year that, uh, that I, I stopped working, you know, from my nine to five job. Okay. So before we get into the real estate uh, investing side of things, tell me a little bit about that job, what work you did before and where you left. I know you're at a few big companies. Do you want to dive into that a little bit just for a few moments? Yeah. So when I first started uh, my career, I was working at Bank of America and that was in the financial world. And I've kind of had a couple different iterations of my life that have progressed. So uh, I, I transitioned from finance in 2008 to 2012. I went from Bank of America to Merrill Lynch. And then I was doing a lot of, you know, uh, heavy ultra high frequency trading during that time. And then I, I stopped working for about a year and I had my first child during that time. And then I was looking for another career move and I wanted to work in tech. So I took my uh, my sales, you know, background from, uh, you know, the financial world. And then I merged it somehow with my, with, you know, technology. And I found a niche, which was in recruiting specifically in engineering. And, uh, somehow, some way I developed a really large, uh, audience within like machine learning, uh, AI, big data, data science. And I started working at companies and my first job was, in tech was at Tesla. I worked at Tesla for three years. Um, when I started there, it was about 6,000 employees. And when I left, it was like 30,000 employees. So we got pretty large. In a so you watched period. them grow fairly fast over a shorter period of time. Yeah, I had to, um, you know, I grew with the company, right? The way that I positioned it to engineers or people that we were hiring to the company was that if the company is growing at 80 to 100% year over year growth, then you and your career are also growing at that same, right. at, at that same rate, right? So I grew from, uh, I, I grew exponentially in that short period of time as well, because I was just a, like an entry level recruiter when I first started. When I left, I was managing teams of recruiters across different locations, and I was helping build out like the operations and systems that supported those recruiters and, and their day to day. So, um, so I also had a great time. You know, I worked with SpaceX for a while. I worked with Elon on some cool projects. So all that stuff was was really exciting. And then uh, in in doing all that, I, you know, it was really rocky at, at Tesla at the time. We were just deploying Model 
three, we just released it. We were in like what was called production hell. And at that time, um, Google poached me and they were like, Hey man, like, you know, we've worked with you before. You have a big, big brand name, you know, behind you as far as, uh, in the recruiting world, working with machine learning engineers. And we're about to release the, um, the Google home device and we need your help in building the brain of that device by hiring the engineers that can come in and like create the algorithms on. Gotcha. Okay. On AI. So, um, so I, I was, I, I left Tesla and I transitioned over to, to Google. I didn't interview. It was super cool. It was just like, yo, here's an offer. Right. So, they, they knew basically what your work type was like and everything. And they just brought you right on board. Yeah. So, um, so I joined them and I stayed there for about a year before I, I had already declined like four offers from Facebook and they just kept on giving me offers over and over again. Mm. They wanted to build out the new version of what Facebook was going to transition to, which was from text-based to video-based. And we were going to just migrate everything on Facebook blew over to video content instead of text content. But we needed like PhD level data scientists that had like machine learning backgrounds and AI backgrounds, very niche profiles. And I knew a lot of these guys cause you know, I hung out with them a lot right. and I had them at other companies. So, um, so, you know, I took finally like this big fat offer and I joined, uh, I joined Facebook, but in my time transitioning from, uh, well first before anything, like the entire time I'd already owned real estate. Right. So from the day that I joined Tesla to today, like I owned real estate and during my time at Google, I got more aggressive with real estate because I, I think it was like two, two things. Like first, very strong passion for, for Tesla, for the company at okay. that time, right? Like I built a lot, I'd seen it grow. So right, it was like yeah. a baby. Right? right. It was like a part of you. It was a part of me at that point because I built out so many like operations inside that, like my, my inner circle that I felt a, a big attachment to it and, and letting that go was, was big for me. But the company was shifting and I had better opportunities, but the opportunities that I had that were better weren't like uh, heartfelt. They were just other opportunities, right? right. So um, like Google was like already a massive organization, you know, it's like working for the government basically, right? So it's like right, right. So like I, I was going there not necessarily for the fulfillment as much as just for the paycheck pretty much, right? Of course, yeah. And, and so in that time, yeah, man, I mean, I, um, I learned a lot of stuff and, uh, and so the second thing was just like, I had, I still had a passion for real estate. So I got way more aggressive into real estate when I transitioned from Tesla into Google and I was just like, all right, I need to learn something. I had some downtime when I was leaving Tesla. I was like, I need to learn something because over the last like three, four years, I've just been sitting on real estate, not doing anything with it. Okay. And yeah been seeing the values come up. I've been seeing that my property's values have, have you know, have, have gone up, you know, massively. And now it's just like, all right, what do I, what do I do with this? And why do I have money just kind of sitting there? You know? Right. Of course it's, it's not really working for you as hard. Yeah. So that kind of gets us now into the aspect of going over to your real estate investing background. Tell us a little bit about your, your style and what methods you use in your investing standpoint of real estate. Yeah. So, um, I think it goes back to more like, I, I think it's, it's good to understand like my risk tolerance and my threshold there, because I think if you can get to the core of what, like what happened before real estate for an investor to then get into real estate, I think there's always like a big factor there, right? Like 
Yeah, what you do, maybe what you do with stocks would represent what you do with real estate as in your risk tolerance, like you were saying. That's right. So in, uh, on the stock side, like I was very much like pattern day trader, uh, ultra high frequency. So I was working off, you know, trading off momentum and I was just looking at, you know, at movements throughout the day. So it was all really fast paced trading. And, uh, and then I got into penny stocks and commodities and stuff like that, which started to get more, uh, you know, more strategic. And, and so what I was really good at and what I've always been really good at is assessing numbers, right? Just like looking at numbers and understanding numbers, looking Especially at Especially the, the financial background you came from, I'm sure. That's right. Like supply and demand ratios to me was a very big thing in stocks because I was looking at that all day long and understanding like, is this stock going to take a hit now or is it going to rise given supplies and demand that are right now at this point in time, uh, you know, is happening. And, and that's mm -hmm. instant. So in real estate, it was actually pretty much the same thing, except it was just a different timeline. So you're investing in the same concept, just in a different, uh, you know, in a, in a different timeline in, in essence. So I'm looking at much longer durations of investments, but essentially the same type of analyzation, if it, as you will. So the way that I looked at real estate was, you know, I needed to make sure that the numbers work. So when I first started, I uh, was investing in stocks, you know, it was just pattern day trading. Right. I took an account there from like 25,000 and uh, I was trading it up, you know, trading it up. I was using margin at the beginning and I was like, dude, like I, I know that there is better opportunity for me here. If I actually learn something that's like tangible that I can like do consistently every day and not just it's systematic day. for you. Exactly. And, and I was, uh, you know, I was kind of foreign to having a strategy. I'd never really planned anything out like that young guy, you know, 19 years old. So I was like, you know, um, I need somebody to teach me this. Right. And so I thought about like, who could be a good mentor for me? And these are the things that I thought about. I was like, well, I want a mentor that is not going to be old. Right. Because if they're old, then I'm going to, I'm going to be rich or successful at their age. And right. I don't, I don't want that. Right. The second was like, I didn't want somebody that um, was already rich from a family that was wealthy, right? Like no, wanted, of course you don't want inherited wealth. You want built wealth. That's right. Uh, like a hustler. I, I wanted somebody that also didn't like get rich off of, uh, like a talent, right? Because okay. well, cause it might be a talent you don't have either, you know? Exactly. Right. And then the last thing that was one of the most important things for me, um, cause I got to see this a lot in the banking industry. <laughs> was I didn't want to learn from somebody that was like technically a millionaire, but they were like making massive sacrifices to be a millionaire. Like they were, you know, not going out on the weekends. They weren't driving the nice cars. They, they weren't living the lifestyle of a millionaire. They were living right. The they're more modest on their, their viewpoint. Okay. And, and I didn't want that. You know what I mean? Like I, I get the whole Jeff Bezos drive around in a Honda Civic until it breaks down type of thing. Okay. I got two million in the bank. I get that. But like, that's more of a statement where, whereas like the person that has the five mil that's driving the Honda Civic, like, you know, come on, man. Like you, you know, you, you, you should have built a system that was good enough for you to be able to live the life that you want and not just like clip coupons all day long. Right. Like that's not, oh, the of life. course. So I thought about that. And so I, I met a guy named Tim Sykes. Right. Tim Sykes was the guy yep. that, um, 
that I saw. At that time, Tim Sykes was just getting started in his whole thing and he was starting profitly and it was starting to become something bigger. And I was like, listen, dude, like I'm excited about this. You know, I'm a young guy. I got 25 grand in my account. Like I'm going to give you five grand, pay you up for the year. I want to be one of your closest students. And right. Like, You're like in the inner circle of his mentoring. Yeah, there's only a hundred of us. So I was in the inner circle and, uh, and yeah, I had like just him on text, you know, so I was just like back and forth with him all day. And, uh, and I started making trades that were like absolutely ridiculous, right? Like he was giving me insights to them and I, I would perform my own trades, but he would perform perform his trades. He's let us all know. Then all the traders in the inner circle would also perform their own trades. We would work as a team and kind of like a like a school of fish, right? Like every stock that we would go against, we'd all go against it or we'd go with it or what, what have you. Right. So really easy money to be made. Most people just can't really understand that. So, so that was like the power of being part of a community and having a mentor and, and learning a strategy, right? Like we were right. shorting stocks as they were, as they were essentially, you know, tanking, but we were shorting them as they went parabolic. So you know, we we're catching them all the way on the way down. So that, that took me to about a $600,000 account, right? Within in, my, in how long time span of it? Uh, so I started when I was 19, like when I actually started with Tim and uh, by 2012. So that was like, uh, so like by 21 years old, pretty much. So, okay. So about two years, you went from 25,000 to 600,000. It was like, it was like almost like a full three years. Full year, three years. Okay. Three so, years. At that point, you had 600000 in your trading account. And then where did you move into? Yeah, so I, the market started to change. And the market, as it started to change, there was, it was harder to predict, right? So for me, I was, you know, as a young guy, I, was, I started buying materials, started buying boats and cars and all this other stuff, you know. And then I, I decided, you know, I'm like, I'm just going to go and start because I can't predict the market. I took like an $80,000 hit one day, like just boom, all of a sudden. Like, whoa, this is a lot of money for me to lose here right now. Wake up call. <laughs> wake up call. Wake up call. And I was like, I had quit working at Merrill Lynch. I was driving from like Florida. I, I'm born and raised in Miami from Florida to Malibu. And I'm just like hopping from hotel to hotel, just hanging out and stuff. And during that time, it was like three weeks, four weeks. Uh, I started seeing that my trading account was like taking a plunge. So I tried to average in and then eventually, you know, I lost a, a decent amount. I said, you know what, I'm coming back. And when I go back, I'm not going to invest in, in stocks anymore. I'm going to start putting my money into real estate because um, I saw the market in California at the time. And when I got back to Miami, I was like, oh, this is, this is so infant that this is where the, where, this is the future of what, like California is like Miami on steroids, right? So I was mm -hmm. like, when I, when I thought about that, I got back, back home and I was like, oh, like I got to invest here. Like this is going to be the next place that just erupts in in real estate value so i i bought my first property was a tax auction property i found it remote right so i was like on the grind i was looking like this was before the whole zillows and the you know was, there was still realtor.com zillow was really early stage very early stage didn't have like values or estimates or any of that stuff right and i was just like you know what let me just find what's out there so uh i found this one property it was on market because there was like almost no such thing at that time as like off market. Like everything was on market, you know, right. Right. Barely any whole thing. And uh, it was 2010 and I decided, uh, actually, yeah, it was 2000 going into 2011. Right. So, um, at that point I'd already basically like, uh, you know, been just 
trading full-time, right? So I didn't have the qualifications to go and get a loan, right? So the loans at that time were basically like null. You couldn't get anything because 2010 Right, was- we're still in the recovery from what the, the whole economy just went through. Terrible recovery and it was slow, slow and steady. So it was like you either needed cash at that time or you were, you were stuck, you know, you couldn't, couldn't buy anything because you couldn't use leverage. And even though the interest rates were essentially zero, it didn't matter, you couldn't borrow. So me, a young dude that had basically money that had been acquired through stock trading, like one of the mm-hmm. risky things possible, in a down, a down market, the bank was like, no way, dude. You know, we're, we're not going to give you money. Right. So, and even though I came from a five, almost five years worth of working in the banks, they were still mm-hmm. like, not, nah. you know? and I did loans myself. So I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to use a lot of my capital to buy real estate. I don't believe that the real estate I buy today will be at the prices that they are today in five years. I, I, did, I just didn't think so. Right. Okay. So, yeah. Was a pretty decent foresight, and I was like, "All right, let me, you know, let me go go ahead and buy." I mean, it was still a risk, but it was nonetheless like it was a good risk. And and so I I found this property that had seven bedrooms. Like after I was it a single family or is it a two family or how was it going? So it was a multi-family zoned property that was being used as a single-family home. Hmm. It was like thirty-six hundred square feet. It was. it was a seven bedroom, five bathroom wow. and it had a pool, you know, so it was a large property. And I, you know, I, I, it hit the tax auction. I couldn't go to the tax auction. I chased after it and I saw that these attorneys bought it like instantly, right? They bought it for 80 grand. Wow. And this was in a, I'm, I'm not talking about like, I don't buy garbage. All right. It's like all my real estate is between today, like in today's values, Four hundred and five hundred thousand dollars acquisition prices, right? Okay. So, like half a million dollar places, right? Like I'm not buying, I'm not buying trash. So this property was essentially how I saw it. The, it was going to be the equivalent of that at some point in the future, but I was just buying it severely under market. Right. So I saw these guys scoop it up at eighty thousand. I'm like, they put it right back on the market for two twenty, and and I'm like, dude, first of all, this property it has some liens on it because there was some like illegal fencing that had been done and there was a door that didn't have a light and stuff like that. And it was like almost $30,000 worth of liens. And I, I came in and I said, you know what? Um, I'll, I'll buy the property from you guys. This was literally like the next day after they bought it on the auction. I was like, I'll buy it from you guys. But you just bought it for $80,000. So on record now, I saw that you, 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 you acquired it for $80,000. I'll give you guys one hundred and fifty dollars that's all I got. I got. All I have is 150 grand. You'd be lucky to get this in all cash. In right, this, they're about to double their investment. In, in days, yeah. right? So I was like, you know, it was my first transaction. I really didn't know about real estate or anything like that. And so with the tax auction, this is the, this is the, this is the caveat to the, to the tax auction that, that everybody should know about. Yeah. The tax auction, if you buy a property on a tax deed, all right, a tax deed, in the first few years, if the previous owner comes back, so let me, let me take a step back. The reason why the property is in a tax auction is because somebody didn't pay the taxes on the property. So the right. property, the government, the government took it back and then, uh, and then basically like put it into an auction and then sold it, right? So it's 
out there again. Basically, they just paid the taxes on it. That's all they did. And, and they, maybe a little premium, took the property, put it right back on the market. They didn't touch it. I came in, uh, offered them double. I thought even double was a great value for me. Uh, and then I, I, I heard that there was a tax deed. Uh, and I was like, okay, warranty deed means that when you have a warranty deed, you're guaranteed that that property is yours, like 100%. Right, like, like you have a warranty on, on the deed itself, right? So if something happens, you get a new deed, whatever. But a tax deed is if the dude comes back, let's say like he just was like, you know, I'm leaving for a few, a few years. I'm not gonna pay my, my taxes, but yeah. it's paid off. And he comes back and he tries to claim it, he can't, he can claim it. Now, can he and claim I, it just by paying the taxes that he missed out on or just in general? Yeah, no, I mean, well, both, right? But like, he'd have to go to court, right? He'd have to like get an attorney. But he right, has this whole process in the first like I think it was like two years on this tactic. He was allowed to claim basically full ownership, and 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 there would be almost no rebuttal for me. Like I could just I would just be like, it's yours, buddy. You know what I mean? So massive risk for me. And then the next twenty years on the tax deed is that if he still comes back, he could get he could still claim a ownership percentage in the property. Right. Wow. So I'm like, yo, <laughs> this is a massive risk for me. Like, I'm not going to go. And, but I said, you know what? Like, how long will it take? I told my attorney, Patrick, at the, at the time, I'm like, how long will it take for me to fight to get a warranty? He's like, well, you know, it's, it's going to take you like six months. I said, let's, let's do it. We have six months at our leisure right now because we're in a bad market. Right. So yeah. nobody come up and be like, hey, you know what? Like, I'll give you more in all cash once this thing goes pending. So let's just, let's roll with this and see what happens. And we got, you know, we got it. We got the, we got the warranty deed. Uh, we closed. And then the moment we closed, I put in like a, a good 45,000 into it in cash. So I was in for my 600. Uh, I was in about 200, right? Into the property. Yeah. That was a, a massive chunk of capital that I was using to trade stocks, right? And then the following year, uh, and then, so what I did with that property, I, I just put it to rent. I converted it from a, a single family, put up a few walls. Uh, I split out the kitchens and I made a triplex out of it, right? Were, were these triplexes uh, separate metered or how did that work as far as the metering goes? So separate metered and the property, uh, well, I had, to get a, I had to get a third meter, but the, it already had two meters. So it was Tech, it was zoned between two and four units. It can go up to four units, but it didn't okay. have the square footage for four. It only had the square footage for three. And I was struggling with electric at the time because of all the appliances that were inside of it, the pool pump, everything that it had. Mm, so it was running so to, much power off of X amount of breakers. Okay. Yeah, so I had to upgrade <clears throat> the meters. So that cost me some change, you know, to do. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to have the zoning in my favor, you know, and also at that time, like things were easy because there wasn't a lot of people doing a lot of activity at that time. So I was able to get in there and really like work with the city and kind of negotiate in my, on my behalf. And they, they reduced drastically a lot of the cost on that, right? Like the typical cost today to go and get a meter is like 10 grand or something. Right. But right. You know, I was able to get it for like maybe, you know, two and a half, something like that. You know what I mean? Okay. And, and so, we got that done. Now the rewiring, everything all inside. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So then I, I started making off that property. It was like almost, I think it was like 3,200 a month off that property. Green clear, but 3,200 a month. 
and the taxes were only on $150,000 property. So it was like barely anything, you know? Yeah, taxes were very low. Where it was assessed at was like 150,000? It was after I put in, uh, so yeah, it was assessed at 150,000 and then I put like almost 50 grand into it. So um, I didn't do a reappraisal after it. So after I fixed it, I didn't do a reappraisal because I didn't really know, you know what I mean? And also like there was the purpose of doing a reappraisal because I wasn't going to qualify for a loan anyways. Right. You weren't going to pull out your money. So you just kind of left it as is. Right. I mean, I could have maybe found a private lender or a hard money loan, but I didn't know about that stuff, you know? So right. for- you were just getting started. You were learning. You're using this property almost as like a learning experience as well. That's right. So that was my so, first. That was your first one. So now- Talk to me about the the method you use when you invest now. Like, what is it? What, what's the name for? Is it a buy and hold? Is it flip? Is it burr? Uh, what which route do you take? And once you tell me what route you take, break it down a little bit for the listeners that aren't super familiar with it. Yeah. So I um, I started educating when I was at uh, Tesla, like I mentioned, right? Yep. And I've been sitting on I've been sitting on my first property, and then this, the next year in twenty. Uh, 2012 going into 2013, I bought my second property and I kind of messed up because I bought that one for myself, but I paid for it in all cash and it was a short sale. So it was going into foreclosure and I came in and I bought it. It was 255,000. And in, in purchasing that property, you know, I basically left myself strapped. That's why I went back to go work. Right. And, um, and when I, you know, I, I waited a, f- a few years, I put both of the properties to rent when I moved to California and, um, something hit me like once I left Tesla where I was like, you know, I have so much money, so much equity sitting here. What, what am I, what am I not doing? Like, what am I doing wrong? Right. And so I started to like kind of think and, and, uh, and I, and educate, I started reading again, the rich dad, poor dad series. And don't get me wrong. Like I love the books, but they don't give you the strategy. So Correct. It yeah. gave me the philosophy and I was great. And I tell all my new beginners, I'm like, listen, like read the books for the philosophy, but you're not going to learn the strategy on this guy. Correct. They don't break anything down for you in kind of one, two, three scenario of how you should be going about it. I haven't read any book yet that gives you a one, two, three breakdown. No. Yeah. They, it's, they don't. Right. They, like, they tell you about concepts, but they don't tell you how to use the concepts straightforward. So yeah, like this book right here, one of my favorite by Brian, Brian Murray is uh, crushing it. Right. And Brian Murray, he lives an hour from me. <laughs> my buddy just did a syndication with him. It, great, great, great author. And um, you know how a small investor can make it big. Great author, great book, no strategy, no strategy, yep. just straight up terms. Uh, what he did and, and he'll tell you otherwise. He'll be like, well, you can learn from my experience. And, and I get that. But the intricacies of the financing, the, the, the things that you need to do, the things to expect through your closing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how to structure negotiation, stuff like that, he doesn't teach you in that book. You know? And I didn't get it from Millionaire Fastlane by MJ DeMarco. I didn't get it from Robert Kiyosaki. I didn't get it from any book that I read. Right. So I was like, dude, I'm going to have to make this shit up as I go along. Like, I'm well, just, yeah, and so much of it you learn by actually doing it. You just learn by, oh, you, you screwed up here. You know, definitely not to do that next time. So I, um, 
So I, I thought to myself, I, I started looking internally like at the Tesla, Facebook, Google, like hierarchy and how they structured their organizations. And I was like, well, you know, how can I build a system like how they built, right? And so I started looking at data. I started like, I, I got a buddy of mine that's a data scientist that I was like, listen, like help me figure out how I can create an accelerated strategy that gets me to like buy real estate at, at scale faster mm. because I don't want to work forever anymore. Like I don't want to oh, keep job to job. And, uh, and so we started looking at was how does gentrification, we were going through gentrification in the Bay area, right? Significant gentrification where people were littered around the streets in, in homeless tents, even though they were normal people, just like you and I, right? Like these people had gone through massive tech gentrification from these wealthy, salaried young people coming in for Facebooks and Googles hiring them and forcing these families, these cultural like, you know, communities out to the streets. And, uh, and I saw that and I'm like, well, if that's happening here, this is unaffordable. I, I'm not going to afford anything in the Bay area, but it's probably happening everywhere. Right? So where else is this happening? We started digesting data and I looked at, I, obviously I was going to look at my hometown first, right? I was like, what's happening in Miami? So I looked at Miami, I found a pocket that was going through severe gentrification. I call it the battleground zone because it's essentially between the urban downtown vicinity and the suburbs. And then all of the service workers that service both of those communities live in the center. And in that center, it's been a hub for cultural, you know, preservation for a long time. But now right. the, the lack of affordability in both of these hubs has forced these, you know, forced gentrification to happen into the center. So I said, what happens in those areas when gentrification happens and how fast do appre does appreciation rise in those areas when gentrification is a fact? So I, I started reading about that and I started reading about what I can do with my properties when I have equity trapped inside of them. And that's where I heard about Burr, right? And I was like, oh, the Burr strategy, you know, for those that are, that are listening is buying a property, rehabbing the property, renting the property out, you know, then refinancing the property and then repeating the, pro the, the process all over again. Right. So okay, yeah. I bought, I bought my, I had already bought my properties. They were cash, you know, free, basically ready to go. Now it was just, and I'd already rehabbed them. So they didn't need rehabs. Uh, the rents were, re were, were already like, you know, rose the rents multiple times. Right. Okay. So point it was just like what's the next step and that's right taking my equity out right and i was always under the impression of using a heloc i was always under the impression use a right on your well on your primary residence pull out some money there i was like you know what like take a home equity line of credit because then i can like uh have this loan that i can use as a line of credit consistently uh and so if i pay it back and then i use it i pay it back it's like whatever. a credit card for houses Exactly. It's a huge credit card for houses, but, um, you know, the payment period is like deferred and you have, you know, yes, it may be higher interest in some respect, but like it was still flexible. It just had some negatives to it, which was that it was a secondary loan on your property. It was extremely difficult to get in that market because, uh, you know, where you're sitting in the timeline of where the market is. Yeah. It was like default after default of these things. Yep. Uh, so that product was like almost obsolete at that point. So I said, you know what? Uh, I'm not going to get that. So what was the next option? Because I'd already tried three times. That, that, that wasn't happening. So I, 
I ran into a, a buddy of mine and then I ran into another buddy of mine, two different buddies that worked with the same lender just coincidentally. Yep. And, I was, and they, they both referred me to the guy and I was like, you know what? I'm going I'm to reach out to him and, and see what's up. And I found out that he's a big, he's a big guy. He was a big player in Miami and I was trying to be a big guy and big player in Miami too. So I was like, you know what? Um, let me just reach out to this guy and, and see what's up. So finally I talked to him and uh, you know, I tried to create some value for him. That was the way that I positioned it. I was like, Hey man, listen, you know, I'm not trying to like get anything from you. I just want to, I want to learn a little bit about, you know, the, the process and I've heard about Burr, but most importantly, like I, I want to know about cash out refinances. Right. Cause that's the last key to the piece of the puzzle that you need to figure out. That's right. I, I have these two properties. I need to take out equity from these properties. How do I do it? And, and so, you know, I had to give a little bit of, to, to him in order to get that, that in return. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, he explained to me how we maneuvered through all of my financials to make sure that everything was, uh, consistent and going to go through underwriting. And we were able to do, you know, some cash out refinances. Plus I had, you know, some accumulation of cash that had come in from Tesla. When I got into Tesla, my stock was 90 bucks a share, right? So, uh, when I, as we're sitting over 500 today, yeah, when I sold it was 400 a share. So it was, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd seen a lot of, a lot of growth and, um, and then I also just had bonus payouts and all these other things that come to me. So I had already been stacking up some cash ready to go. Plus I had equity in these two properties. And so I probably had about like, you know, I'd almost had, you know, my first property, the $150,000 property, that one had, um, I had gone up to about, I almost tried to sell it about three years ago for 350, 350 grand. And nice. I didn't, I didn't end up doing it. And then today it's 700 grand, right? So wow. it doubled over just another couple of years. The, the cash that I'm making off of that now, it was, I told you it was a uh, 3000 and change when I first, you know, started renting it. Yeah. It's, it's like almost six grand in, in change. Yeah. So you just about double where the rents are. And I'm sure the market has also grown in that area. Yeah. So I took advantage of that and I did a cash out refi for like 425 when I reappraised it at 700. So you you basically took out every dime you had invested in it plus extra and now you're able to move that capital into the next deal. I got paid. I got paid to buy that house. Yeah, that's awesome. That that's when you know. And now you you have a property with an infinite return on it, essentially, because you have no money invested. There's no nothing you can measure the return on the cash on cash return on it. That that property. The way that I explain it to to people is that that property bought me five more properties. Yep. Okay. I'll explain to you how. The first, so that property. I took out 425,000 off that property. I'd already mm -hmm. owned the first. I then used leverage on three new mortgages. And yep. I did uh, three simultaneous closes in one day. Uh, and I bought three new multifamily properties that I had been sourcing for like, let's call it four weeks, five weeks. Now were these value add or turnkey? These, uh, no, I always do value add. Okay, so, so you, you really, you make your money on the buy side. I always make money on the buy side. I always uh, invest into the property. And the way that I saw it was if I buy at bulk, if I buy at scale, I could keep my team busy enough where I could lower my, uh, my rehab costs. So oh, yeah, you're giving them, instead of doing a job here and another job another month, you're like, all right, I've got these five lined up right away. So you guys, you're gonna have work regardless. You're gonna be taken care of. So it would Just drop like the anything. cost per door. Yeah. Yep. 
So I went from like a $12,000 per door rehab to like a $6,000 per door rehab because wow. <laughs> I was giving them consistent work for, and then I started continuously buying because the first property bought the next three. I used a hundred, a hundred, a hundred on each one of them down and I bought 400 grand properties, right? So 400, 400, 400, I put a hundred, a hundred, a hundred. Uh, I then used like, let's say 25 to 35 grand in rehab costs to, you know, restructure and make them better cash flow producing assets. I then appreciated the values on those properties by putting that forced appreciation by doing the work to it. That's right. Then I was able to go back to my lender and say, Hey, listen, I have master lease agreements on all these properties. I'm making X amount of money on each one of them. Use this income that comes in or this revenue that comes in to offset the debt load that I have so that now I can qualify that income. I can essentially qualify the revenue as a form of income for Richard. So now I don't really have any debt at all. And because it's all positive debt, right? It's paying for itself based upon right. the revenue. Now, were, was this lender a credit union or a regular bank? And were these properties in your personal name? Were they in different entities or are they all in the same entity or the same LLC? Yeah, so I had to buy them under my own personal name at first because okay. that was the qualifier. Um, I didn't really have LLCs or anything of the sort because I was still, you know, I still owned two properties only and I was transitioning into now like going into bulk. Um, and I also didn't really didn't know about LLCs or anything like that. I, yeah, so I bought them in my name and the qualifying of the loans and everything was in my name, the debts in my name. And then, um, credit union bank portfolio credit, lender. Yeah. So credit union, I never go with a big bank because big banks, look, the way that I look at big banks is, is this way. And I, I think that not many people have mentioned this. So I think it's important to understand. And this is from straight from like a lender's perspective. You don't go to uh, a big bank and try to get a loan from them because a big bank isn't in the business of lending money. They're in the business of taking deposits. That's a very different thing, right? Taking deposits is very different than lending money. So if you're going to go and borrow money, then you're going to go to a specific, like to an actual lender of money. Right. So like an, a mortgage lender, you know? So like of a, course. a caliber home loans is probably a really good one, right? Because all they do, all they specify in is lending money, right? Right buy home. So you're going to have an easier way of going through underwriting because they're in the business of building relationships with, with buyers, you know, or sellers or whatnot, buyers in particular. So if you go to a big bank, you're just going to be viewed as a transaction because they are not really selling loan products. They're just packaging in other services and products into their deposits. Mm. Uh, products that they have, right? So it's like, right. just so happens to be, you have a checking account, so we're going to give you a mortgage, you know, or you can qualify for a mortgage. Oh, always. Every time you go in there, you drop some money in the account, like, oh, would you qualify for a business credit card? Would you like to open it up today? <laughs> right. And, and sometimes it's worth it, right? But like a big bank is so complicated and it's, you know, it, it wasn't worth because they're not in the business of, of helping you scale. They're in the business of just getting you the one transaction and done. So, uh, so I, I went with a, I went with more of a national lender, uh, smaller, more, you know, hungrier, right? Portfolio so kept it all in house or was it sold in the secondary? Uh, you mean as in like, did I go all in with just this one lender? Right. right. So like that lender you used on those properties when you leveraged those three properties, the hundred thousand each, was that all the same lender or were those different? Every, every, every property was the same lender. 
Okay. Now, was that lender a portfolio lender, meaning they kept all your loans in house on the books there, or did they take it in and sell it on the secondary market, whatever market? Okay. You had? So, so most of those companies sell them on the secondary market. Right? Okay. All right. So they're selling the debt to to the debt holders that want to earn interest on that debt. Gotcha. Uh, so I I had that happen to me on two. I have like uh, right now I have about six loans and uh, two of them got sold out. And then I just did another refinance as of like two months ago for uh, all six of those loans. I dropped my interest rate from six and a half percent when I was acquiring. Um, I didn't care about the interest rates because I knew that I was going to fix the properties and then do refinances again later. So I was like, right. So the interest rate doesn't have that much of an effect. Yeah. It's front loaded, but for a short period of time. Um, so you, you refinanced them recently from when you were buying them earlier, you get the lower rates now. Now, because of that method, you're using the Burr method again, for those that don't know, buy, reha- uh, rehab or renovate, rent, uh, refinance, repeat. Um, because of all this money you're generating from these properties, all this equity you're pulling out to put into new deals, all this capital, are you ever using any private money or hard money? Or because of the amount you've taken out, you're able to just use your own? It gets to the point where, uh, and I think that's a great question. So it gets to the point where you, you actually start to need, you start to evolve into like having more cash than you know really what to do with, right? Because right. I'll give you the example. I used the first property. I took the 425 plus I had other cash. I used that. I sold the secondary house that I, that I told you about that one. I made, you know, it's like 300 and change off of it. I did a 1031 exchange on that property and bought another property. Nice. Real uh, quick before you just 1031 exchange, just explain it real quick. 30 seconds. Yeah. 1031 exchange. I mean, just to make it very simple is basically so that you don't pay taxes on the money right then and there when you sell. Right. So you can right on the capital gains. That's right. So you just roll the money over into another property. Now there's stipulations that you have to go through for 1031s, which is like, you got to use all the funds. You can't use like a portion of it or whatnot. I was tempted to do that. And <laughs> cause I was, I was going to break that out and then use leverage on the 300 to go and buy, let's say two properties and rehab them with the remaining hundred. And again, just spread them out. Yeah. And spread and spread it out, but I couldn't do that because then it wouldn't qualify for the 1031. So instead, right, like asset of uh, of um, similar or higher value for the 1031, as far as rules go. Yeah, correct. And you have to do it in a certain timetable. So oh yeah, like, that that just that would make my blood pressure rise. the The time they give you is not long at all. I mean, to give you an idea, in New York State where we're at, we typically look at an average of a 60 to 90 day close on a property. I mean, it's just it's not enough time sometimes, but yeah. So go ahead and continue. That's why you got New Yorkers coming down to Florida. Yeah. Right. It's a mess, man. But anyways, (laughs) so, uh, so I did a 1031 on that property and I also, um, I, I then saw that that was going to be a a complication for me because I wanted to use leverage on that. So instead I, um, I went and I, I, I did the the refinance, the cash out refinance on the other property. And then I used leverage for that. So ended up scaling. Uh, so the first property bought the next three, the next three, uh, bought two more. So it ended up being, you know, five plus the first. And, uh, and then I used my other remaining cash and the, um, the sale to buy a few more properties. I did a couple of other seller financed properties and then I bought a, um, a building. And so 
when I finally had, so all of these cash out refinances added up to having so much capital that I was like, okay, so now that I've amassed more appreciation in these three properties now, right? So I got all my money back on these three properties, but I still own them and I'm still making cash flow off of them. Let me go and use the capital that I have off these properties now after these uh, cash out refinances to go and buy more real estate. You know, so I was like, let me go and use leverage on new real estate or, and this is where it got complicated for me as an investor. Because I was like, okay, I keep using the same strategy I'm using right now, which is like duplex, triplex, fourplex, duplex, triplex, fourplex. All right. Or I could go bigger. And I was doing a lot of research at the time and I was like, well, this is where this book really came in handy yep. because uh, Brian explains in it, you know, the solar project and how he went through um, uh, an acquisition where he did like semi uh, seller financing and the other half was actually financed. And that I thought was really interesting. So that piqued my interest and I started doing seller financing. Deals right, he leveraged himself even higher with all these different loans, first position, second position. Yep. Yeah. Which is, which is a little crazy, but you know, like that, that was what he did. And I haven't done that. I'm fully under leveraged. Like my portfolio is 6.7 million and my debt is only 2 million. Right. So yeah, wow, yeah. I'm, like, I'm in good shape when it comes to You got to a lot it. of equity sitting around that you can be pulling out. I got a lot of equity. I got a lot of equity. Yeah. So, so this, the next purchase was the building and you know, and I told myself, I'm like, you know, when I, early on, I had all the cash, I could have bought, just bought that building straight up. Like it right. wasn't on the market, but I could have bought something of the likes, but I wasn't going to use leverage. I was going to use all my money. I was going to put it to risk, right? Which is kind of like what's happening right now anyways with that property. But is I did a commercial property. It's a commercial property. It used to okay. be a church that was converted into eight units. I bought it as eight units and, uh, and it's, it's a legal eight unit building. Uh, it has two structures. And it's what really piqued my interest about it was that it was in a, it was in literally like the hub of the battleground zone. The area you were describing earlier over in uh, Miami. Yes. Miami. Yeah. So okay. I noticed that there was a lot across the street that was, that was empty and, but it had been sold recently like two or three years before it had been sold and already had permits and an architectural design for brand new, you know, townhomes, beautiful. Right. Brand new. And then across the street, they were gutting out and renovating, which they've now finished a brand new modernized, like hostel, super beautiful. And then across the street, you that, said hospital, hostel. Oh, hostel. Okay. Like an Airbnb hostel, like super okay. yep. modern, uh, electronic doors where you can just like sign in, you know, whatever. So I saw that and I was like, dude, this is a full on invasion of gentrification in this area. I mean, cause this area is like people pushing shopping carts down the sidewalk and stuff. You know, it's like the most, you know, cultural place you can get in this, in this Miami hub and this building just to, you know, on the corner and a wholesaler snagged it and a pretty well-known wholesaler in Miami. And I was like, you know, let me just call this guy up because wasn't answering me and I kept on calling him. Finally, I just got in touch with him and I'm like, you know what, dude, like, look, I got some cash. I'm interested in the deal. You have it up for 750. You just recently bought it a month ago. It's kind of like the first property I bought, you know? Yeah. It was like a unique situation. You recently bought the property for 600 grand. All right. He, he, he thought that he, with him and his partner tried to buy the deal with hard money 
to then use like to, I guess to flip it and they didn't maybe they didn't run as an inspection report or they bought it and they thought that it was going to take you know less cost than it was which you know took some cost to, to rehab it and the guys like they just gave up on it. they were just like in a month they were just like okay we're not gonna be able to make money off this deal so let's just you know let's just get it. let's just get out of it enter richard enter richard <laughs> like one man's trash come here yeah. <laughs> So I was like, you know what, here's a, here's a, here's an offer. I was like, look, I'll give you six fit all cash. I removed all the, all the contingencies, meaning for those that are out there, yeah, I mean, for those that are out there, like the contingencies means like no inspection, uh, like no, nothing. It was like site. No financing contingency. Nothing. Straight up. Here's six fifty grand. Like take it or leave it. And right. I'll close it. I'll close in seven days. Let's do this. Seven days. That'd be a dream for mine, but yes. <laughs> seven days. I was like, here's seven, seven day close. Here you go. And the guys were like, you know, and they got another offer. They got another offer and the offer came back and they're like, listen, you know, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to sell it for 650. It's too low, but you know, we'll sell it for, uh, you know, let's, let's meet in the middle somewhere. Let's meet at like, you know, six, uh, six, eight, six, nine, six, ninety. I think they came. I'm like, listen, man, you ain't getting a better deal than this. So let's go, let's meet in the middle where I was talking about and where you're talking about. So let's right. meet, let's meet in the middle of the middle, you know, six <laughs> sixties. And I said, listen, man, I dropped all the contingencies and everything. Like, this is the deal. Like take it or leave. This is the deal of the lifetime for you. You take it or leave it. You know? And he right. was like, he was like, all right, you know, we'll take it. I was like, all right, fine. We closed. And I, dude, I was so excited that day, man. I was like, I shivers down my spine. I was like, I just became off this deal alone. Just this deal alone. Not even all my already existing real estate. Just mm-hmm. this deal alone. I already knew I had so much confidence. This was a multi-million dollar building. It was yeah, like this, you're, you're scaling up. I was scaling up. And I had the choice at that same moment. I was already pre-qualified. I already had everything done, ready to go for more leverage to go buy more properties, you know, duplex, triplexes, et cetera. Smaller deals. I was like, dude, I, I want the I want the taste of a strong solar project, you know, Brian Murray deal, you know, yeah, big, yeah. big appreciation, and the complexity of that that comes with it, you know. So, uh, so I got in, you know, and I and I got the deal, and I came into it with about 70, 70 grand, and I fixed the property up. It took me it took me five months, you know. I took the property from a cap rate of, uh, it was like four and like four point two five you know, cap rate or something like that. It was like, it was bad. Yeah. It was like yeah. terrible. Uh, I, you but know, you so, saw the value, you saw the, the, the added value you can put in this property to bring that cap rate up. I mean, dude, the first thing I asked was what are your rents like in that, in that place? And he's like, well, you know, there's a lady that's, you know, she's been there for 30 years and she's only paying like, you know, three to 400 bucks. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, wait, what is she living in a studio? And he's like, no, she's living in a, in a two bedroom. And, and I was like a two bedroom. And you have gentrification happening in this area and you, and this is Miami and you're renting it for three to 400 bucks. She's never had a raised rent in 30 years. <laughs> so I'm like, you know what, dude, that means everybody in this building is undervalued. Yeah. I mean, even if you did no work to the property at all, you went in and didn't even put a single nail on the wall and you just raised rents, you instantly could have just raised the value of that property alone right there. Instantly. Just off of, just off return. Just off, off of proper management on the property. That's it. plain and simple. Yeah. So instead I was like, you know what, let's just see what this baby can get to. You know, I was like, let's just, let's just throw some milk in it for every drop. Yeah. Dude, why not? I mean, how it should be. 
Yeah. So I, I threw in 70, uh, fixed everything, you know, at least for the most part. I fixed every single thing possible that I could, except for the ladies unit that was living in the two bedroom because it just so happened to like accept the fact that I raised her rent. And I was like, well, you know what? Listen, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, oh yeah. Why, why, why invest the money there? She's hanging out. Like, you get in the rent you wanted. Totally get it. So I did everything on the outside, changed all the windows, changed the HVAC systems, uh, changed doors, repainted a lot of the units. The people that left when I raised rents, I, I basically did everything brand new. I, I put in two, uh, three bathrooms brand new. One of the units I didn't inspect before I got in, absolutely destroyed it was a studio. I didn't know because the guy that was in it didn't let us in it until after we closed. And then finally, when we get in there, the thing was... It's a bold move. I've never seen a unit that destroyed in my life. So, you know, that was my problem. But fortunately, it was just a studio. And I was able to go in. Like, let's put it this way. The guy had an extension cord powering his microwave, but the, inspe the inspection cord was going into the outlet from the closet that was inside of one of the other rooms. So it was like, you know, hazard. He was only paying 200 a month. <laughs> it was ridiculous. He was actually paying 700 bucks a month, which is crazy. Wow. So I have no, I have no idea how that, that was the case, but anyways, that's, um, so I raised the price on that and I, I raised the cap. I got to like a, a nine cap and, uh, the property is now producing like about nine, nine grand a month. So good, good numbers. Yeah. Healthy numbers. Um, people are happy there. They pay on time every month, like literally all the time knock on wood, but that's, that's what they do. Uh, vacancy rate. Once those three people left, never like nobody leaves, like right. they're just, fixed and i'm still technically i'm still under under market rates right now on those units like i got i got a couple one bedrooms in there that are are probably renting for like 1100 bucks and right now they should be going for about 1400 bucks okay so you still have upward potential in that now Tons. do you still do you have the equity still in this project have you done the refinance on this yet or how does it look yeah so i i already started the process of giving all the numbers to the commercial lender. Um, that's basically the first step, right? So the first step is like of course. getting all the getting all the details off of the asset itself because they don't care about me as the individual. They don't care about my portfolio. They care about just the individual property itself, the asset. It's its mm. own silo business, so it's going to qualify for its own loan. Well, yeah, that's exactly good because I'm I'm only 21, and so one of the properties I had to buy, I you know, the bank would only give me any bank, any lender would only give me X amount of money due to my income, my age. So, and in my history, job history, things like that. So I wasn't able to get another mortgage. I was telling my lender, come on, you know, just give me some more, give me some more. And it was to the point where I went and did open up an LLC. And when I was buying property, buying properties, I was letting them sit as their own business essentially. And that's what the bank looked at. And they, and I was pulling commercial mortgages on these properties, these two, three families um, to get those done. That's the best way to go. I mean, if you're going to, yeah. if you're going to, if you're going to, you either need to offset the debt and not buy as an individual, you know, uh, sorry, buy as an individual, but offset the, uh, offset the debt with, uh, with lease agreements, mm -hmm. or you need to buy as an entity and it's more complex because you have to go through commercial financing and you know, the terms aren't always in your favor. No, not always, but if you shop around and get some term sheets, you can find some some decent ones and rates are so low right now that you're able to get something good. Like I'm at four and a half percent on some of my commercials right now. I mean, dude, that's, that's free money. Right. Exactly. You took the words right out of my mouth. Now, 
on on these properties you're finding, how are you finding these properties? Are they on market? Do you have an agent looking for you? Um, are you, do you have a team out there that's looking for properties? And I'm sure you're at this point where people are bringing you properties regardless, whether that's wholesalers or just people in the neighborhood that know this person's ready to go, you know? So how are you finding your properties? I think it's a combination of really everything you mentioned, right? So we're doing okay. some yeah. strategy, like going around the neighborhoods and, uh, and offering on properties that are off market. Uh, yeah. we pulled a few of those and, uh, some of them have worked like, uh, we acquired one property that was an off market deal, which was a, um, it was like an old retirement home and mm. I bought, it was zone multifamily, but it was an old retirement home. And I saw that it was a good opportunity to potentially put an offer on that property. The guy was like, listen, I wouldn't, I would never sell it for more than, you know, for less than 500 grand. And I was like, listen, here's an offer. It's just, you know, just to take a look and let me know yep. what you think. <laughs> It's not going to hurt, hurt, right? And then I just put it there, you know, in front of him. I left it there. I was like, open-ended, open-ended. I walked away. And two weeks later, he called back. He's like, listen, man, you know, I'm shutting down the, you know, the ALF, the assistant living facility. And I'm, you know, trying to, I'm going to move his funds and put it somewhere else. You know, my mom was the one that was really here and I was just managing it for him. I was like, all right, listen, um, 400. <laughs> 400. He's like, well, and, and sometimes you got to let them, you know, meditate on the deal a little bit. And if the terms are, are good, sometimes people can't walk away from it. No matter how good the number or how low the number is, sometimes it just works. He came back. He was like, listen, man, I can't, I can't do 400. How about 435? I'm like, look, man, if I do 435, then you're going to have to pay for my closing costs. And he was like, well, you know, and so we ended up at 430 with him paying my closing costs. And then on top of that, you know, cause this is a strategy that we use in the fast track, which you asked me like, what strategy am I using? It's the fast track strategy because I'm no longer just using Burr anymore because Burr is a very general strategy, right? It's just like buy whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. So I, I thought about it in more data centric system based understandings from my background. And I was like, okay, put inject this in here. <laughs> We do this faster. So what Burr is, people are doing in like an average of two years, you know, turnaround. I'm doing in six months, you know. Right. So then the rollover effect of that ends up becoming even faster, right? The compounding effect of that faster. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this guy, I yeah. So I ended up looking out a, a few more steps in the transaction because I've already done so many transactions. I'm like, this guy's not only going to pay my closing costs, but he's going to end up paying all the insurance related issues to give me this property because if I'm using leverage to buy it, if the loan can't qualify because insurance can't be provided because there's electrical problems or plumbing issues or roof tiles that are missing. Right. It's not going to get insured if something happens and the bank also doesn't want to hold on to it because it's crap property that they'll never be able to sell. Yeah. Right. So, so fortunately none of these properties were really crap, but it was just that there were, issues that were preventing us from getting a good policy from insurance to close. Gotcha. Okay. So the guy, so it came back like eight, nine grand worth of, uh, insurance related issues. So we ended up closing around, uh, which he basically just had to take care of himself. Right. So, uh, so, and there's some strategies that I end up using, like with the inspection report with the seller report and stuff like that, that ends up justifying Mm -hmm. a lot of those things. I'm like, listen, man, if you don't cure these issues, if I can't get financing, 
which I can get financing for anything. If I can't get financing, who else is going to get it? Yeah. See now, and that's something I like that is something I've been catching that you've been talking about with these properties and things is you aren't really emotionally attached to some of these properties. You, you put your number on the spot and you say, take it or leave it. And yes, you're willing to negotiate a little bit because that's the name of the game, but you're not going to pay outrageous premiums for these properties because they're, they're going to fit a certain criteria for it. I think that's something that a lot of investors, newer investors, I'd say struggle with. And it's something I've struggled with as well, where if it's at a really good location or the property's in really good condition and the numbers are where you want it to be, but you can stretch it a little more, but you get a little emotionally tied. You don't do that, which is good. I mean, I think that's huge for, for, for anyone in any business, not just real estate. I, I think there's, so there's two things. Um, I want to talk about the blended portfolio that I created. Yep. And, and I think there's, cause it touches on that, but then there was another thing. So we'll talk, we'll talk about the blended portfolio first. When I started buying real estate and I started to build out this strategy, I thought to myself, all right, what do I want to benefit from the most with this real estate portfolio? Well, the first thing I want is I want cash flow, right? Because I want to replace, like that's the most urgent thing. It's like replace your working income as fast as possible so you can dedicate all your time to doing this if you want to. Right. And you're doing this all, you're in the country of Columbia, correct? That's where you live. That's your residence and everything you invest in is in Miami. So we, we were buying all these properties and we still buy all these properties remotely. And I don't, so today I live in Columbia, but six months ago I lived in San Francisco. Oh, and so you're still doing it remotely from different coast. Yeah. We've never even stepped foot on our properties. Yeah. I've never seen, I've never seen my properties in person. Right. You've got the systems and you got the teams in place. So, so that's, so it's, so like I can do it from anywhere, which is a very, you know, it's a very unique thing, but it's possible. And as long as you have like a very systems based mindset where you're like, I'm going to build something that works for me, I, it replaces me and I can just like manage and oversee it. The highest ranking of passive income, honestly. Yeah. So the blended portfolio, what do I mean by that? The blended portfolio, really what I mean by that is that, I wanted cash flow, but I also wanted appreciation, right? Like both of these two things were ultimately very important for me because, but if I could cycle in properties year after year of appreciation, mm -hmm. right? Then I can be cashing out on these properties. A lot of them may, so the blended portfolio, what I mean by that is that these cash flow properties that I was buying, they have a lot of cash flow, but they're not in the best appreciation zone. So they're not going to go up in value as much, but they're giving me 25% returns on my money. You know, I'm like, I'm not going to argue that 25% you know I mean? returns because they're 25% returns on, on some of my good properties. Right. And those are my good cash flow properties, you know, anywhere between like 18 to 30% returns on some of these properties that I'm making off of cash flow. And, but the appreciation is slower. Right, they're maybe right. only appreciating at a rate of three to five percent a year, seven to nine percent a year, something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I then I created a blended portfolio where some of my properties I had to take a little bit of uh, took a little bit of biting the bullet because I was like, you know what, if I buy the eight to ten percent returns uh, on cash flow but I buy them in very strategic areas, very strategic neighborhoods, their appreciation will skyrocket faster. It's a trade-off. Exactly. 
to, to, to give you an idea how it works in Syracuse, New York, the average, the median home price in Syracuse is 150,000. Okay. Taxes on $150,000 home or $4,000 per year almost. So that kind of gives you an idea. So here we have a lot of investors come in from New York city, all over the country. I mean, I have clients from Australia who come in and invest here. We have that cash flow, that super high cash flow. We barely appreciate. I mean, we, we plateau if anything, maybe one to one and a half percent of appreciation per year versus you go four hours downstate to the city, New York city, and they're looking at you know, the low 4% and lower cap rates, but they're also appreciating and their money's doubling by selling in five years on the property. So it's just, it's very unique how all the, the different markets sit. It yeah. really is. So the way I saw it, I was like, all right, if I'm buying eight to 10% returns on cash flow for speculation, I'm okay with that. I can live with that. And I'm, 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 I'm fine with that in a bad market. That's what I mean. Right. Yeah. Because I'm not really okay with it compared to the 25 to 30 percenters. But if the appreciation is going from a $400,000 property to a, you know, $595,000 property in a matter of 18 months, it's you like both almost. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I would, so like the eight to 10% return, I'll take the eight to, the eight to ten percent return, which I'm just squeezing by at that point because of any maintenance, any unexpected maintenance costs, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Any raises in cost on the property, any any unexpected vacancies, right? Yep. Extended vacancies. You know, so those things are factors. I was like, well, you know what? Maybe my cash flow won't be as positive, not necessarily negative, it won't be as positive as the others but my appreciation will be stellar. You know? Oh so, yeah. So the trade off. So I was, so, so now I'm at a point where some of those, some of those bets are starting to pay off now. Right. right. So like but this one recent property that I purchased the neighbor, smaller property, I bought mine for 400. He bought, he bought his, God knows how long ago he just sold it. He just sold it for 380. Right. A year after I bought mine for 400 mines, you know, four bedroom, uh, du duplex, you know, so that's two units Yep. and he has just a three bedroom, you know, whatever, two bathroom, but they just remodeled it and they're now putting it back on the market. The people that bought it for 380, they put it back on the market for 595. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's in the numbers. Now, does you, is your portfolio have any single families in it or is it all multi-units for the most part? Um, everything is multi Every single property I have is multi-unit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's really how it is here because the price point is so low. The margins are a little tight. It's, it's tough to do a single family sometimes. Um, with this whole portfolio and you're managing it from, from a distance, are there any programs you use on your phone, on the computer that you're able to keep everything organized, keep track of everything, see numbers, things like that. Yeah. So, um, I built out a, an analyzer, so a custom built analyzer by a data yep. scientist that I told you. So he built that out for me, which helps me analyze all my deals. Oh, of course. Yep. I've got the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very comprehensive deal analyzer. And I use that religiously. I use it on my own properties all the time. I use it on external properties, you know, et cetera investors. And then I have, um, so that's custom. I have another custom doc that was built for me that has all of, it basically tracks all of my property management, both expenses and revenue. So okay. 
for all of, and it's, it's not automated as much as I would want it to be. Like for the most part, it's automated, but right. um, there are some manual tasks that property manager has to input every month in order for it to spit out the right numbers. And that's custom, right? So that's Google Sheets. I use FaceTime like every day, right? Because I'm always looking at stuff. Like yesterday I installed shutters in one of my places. Um, I have a bathroom that's being built out right now. I just did a roof today on another property. Um, I had, you know, the list goes on and on, right? So it's just like every single day I'm always, I always have a project, like every single day. And, and not now to the point where I just have multiple projects. So we're, we are now getting to the point where we have 50 units, right? That are, that are being managed by, uh, two property managers. And, uh, and so that's, that's a lot, you know, it's it's a lot more than one day basically. And especially the amount of units you have to the value of your portfolio, you can kind of tell the quality of those units. Yeah. Doing simple math, things like that, what the market's saying. My my bread and butter every day is just FaceTime. I got this. Point. Yeah, so it's it's nothing really too complex for you. I don't I don't have a comp. I did not build on purpose a complex system because if I was to no longer be here, or if I needed to transition this to somebody so they can take control of it at some point, I want it to be simple. It should yeah. be, It shouldn't also yeah. depend on systems because, like for example, I got a lot of buddies of mine that do Airbnb. Awesome. But if Airbnb stops working, oh, you're screwed. Yeah, <laughs> so, like, there goes all your all your income. I mean that that is probably a hundred percent of everyone's short term income at the moment. Great. I mean I, I've got a, a unit Airbnb, and it's great because it makes much more than the market rent would do at that unit. But again, you're you're hundred percent right. If that ever went away one day or something happened, then there goes all of that income on that. And on that's that just property. One factor, right. The other factor is like working more. I know. I know the people that worked at, you know, that worked at Airbnb personally, because a lot of them worked at Tesla and. Facebook. Oh, I'm sure you guys all cross paths with Tesla, Facebook, Google, and, yeah. and all, all those big tech guys over there. Yeah. So, so I know, I know that, you know, like I, I just don't, I'm not going to be, a, I'm not going to be reliant on my generational wealth machine <laughs> right? to some like software engineers that have never bought real estate in their lives, you know? Yeah. I mean, again, it's just, you, I'm sure you've heard it a million times. Amazon doesn't own any, uh, any, any items. They use it as the website. Uber doesn't own any vehicles. Airbnb doesn't own any property. It's very funny how all these, all these work, all these industries that have been completely shaken because of these, these buildouts. So, so that's how I see it. I'm like, you know, it's uh, I have to be self, self-reliant, self-sustaining, right? Yep. Um, that's definitely like my strategy. I'm very, as you can hear, like I'm very uh, conservative because I, I don't over leverage. I, I could. Uh, I also, I play by the rules. Like I don't put less than 20% down. I always put 20% down or more. Actually, after my first five properties, I started having to put 25%. Then after my, te- my, my 10th property, I put mm-hmm. 30%. So, you, it seems like you don't like to be too highly leveraged. What's the reasoning behind that? Because I mean, some, I mean, if you ask a majority of investors, I mean, you even ask myself, I'm going to put 20% down. I'm going to put the minimum down on every property I can. That way I can spread my money wider. I can have more properties. I can take more deductions. I can appreciate more properties, bring in more income. You know what I mean? What's yeah. the reason that you don't leverage yourself so high? And for those that don't understand leveraging, just meaning basically borrowing more is the, the best way to just say I think. This year, I'm going to uh, get closer to being at the 50% leveraged mark across the portfolio. Mm-hmm. 
take out probably uh, a mill off of the the building. So I remember I bought the building for six sixty two. Yep. I, I put in you know seventy. I'm in it in the low seven hundreds. I got all cash in there. I did a reappraisal. It came back at like one point four. Right. So. I can go in now. I mean, you can pull every dime you put in still and still be leveraged at 50%. I basically, again, I got paid for that building, right? I got paid to buy the building. I get all my money back and I'll probably take another like 100 G's on top of that, right? So I'll probably, I'll probably, I'll, I'm probably looking at like maybe eight to 900 grand I could take off that building. So taking that plus, you know, the cash that I've accrued from the cash flow production, right? I figure that that, that can give me a lot of buying power in a, in a cheaper market in the event that things start to soften up and I'm still leveraged. I'm still under leveraged, right? I'm not over leveraged. I'm like right. 50%. I think 50% is, is my, is like, I would not go higher than that. Right. Because anything over that, I feel like the market takes too much of a hit. I, you know, I could be too much susceptible to market conditions. You just never know. Yeah. And, and I, I I totally get that because where the market's sitting and how high it is and God only knows what could happen in the next year here with, with where it's at. I mean, I don't time markets, right? Great investors, they don't time markets, right? Like they, they just simply look for deals. And so I, I, I look for deals, but I do believe that, uh, that we're, we're due for a nice little pullback, you know, and that's healthy. Like, don't get me wrong. It's a correction. Corrections are good. You, you want corrections and that's corrections, not a scary word, you know? Not so. My goal this year, I already did as much as I wanted to in cash out refinances last year, except for the building, right? Because the building was still in rehab mode, and I did a a full on a full on refinance across all of my loans after I did the cash out refinances to reduce my rate thereafter. So yeah, and. I rolled in this year my closing cost and my taxes and my insurance cost into my loans, and I still save like three grand a month off of uh, my interest rate cost. There right? you go. So yeah. The thirty in thirty years, you know, I saved over a million bucks in interest, even rolling in my you know in, uh, taxes and insurance and whatever. So I saved some cash there, right? Maybe a good one hundred and fifty grand. And uh, and so I thought to myself, like, all right, between now and the middle of this year. I need to do a commercial cash out refinance on the, on the building, take out a good, you know, good, nice chunk, like 800 grand. You get paid to have bought that building basically. Yep. And, but I don't want to use that money just yet. Right. That's, that's the problem. It's like, I do want to use it, but I don't feel that that money could be put to its maximum use in this market right now. Okay. And that's, that's my biggest worry is like, if I go and I take a cash out refinance and I get up to 50% uh, uh, debt, uh, you know, debt load on, on my portfolio and I don't have anything to apply that money towards, what was the purpose? Yeah. Of- you're, you're really almost make, making less money when it just sits in an account ready to go. Now, would you be getting that money in place though? For if we do have the correction, you're just going to use it as a buying opportunity there. That's right. I wouldn't be putting that money into stocks. I wouldn't be putting that money into risk-based liabilities. I would, I, I, but I also, I despise sitting on money at the same time. So oh, it, 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 you're, you're losing it technically, according to how much a, 
um, inflation goes versus the the regular Joe Schmo checking and savings account rate. That's right. So for me, I'm like, well, I am. If there's one thing I'm trying, <laughs> so I guess like it kind of goes back to my like I'm not trying to time the market, but I'm trying to time. I'm trying to time. I guess in essence, I am trying to time the market in some. Yeah, way. but you're looking for more for a deal. You're not really. You're not waiting the market to just completely drop. You're you're getting it the right. I totally get what you're saying with you're not trying to time it, but in an essence, you almost are timing it. But it's just it's a cycle, right. and you're just waiting for the correction of the cycle. You, you almost do know where it's going to loop around. Right. Do you still have anything invested in stocks or any commodities, or are you all really real estate? I'm I am hardcore real estate right now because nice. I'm on a mission to getting to hundred mil. And okay, that was gonna be my next question. What's the long-term goal, okay. Long-term goal is by, so if I can get to, you know, if I can get to, or I, so if I started at 21 and by 31, you know, it's, let's say seven mil, I have a good foundation now. Uh, oh yeah. I haven't taken out a lot of the equity that I have there. I'm using, I'm using a little bit of the cash flow that I'm making to reinvest it into my own like business. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's another thing that's actually grown exponentially as well. So in doing that, I think there's like, there, there's a lot of reinvestment going on right now. Right. And that's the yeah. most important thing. And, and I'm seeing things coming up to scale. This is one of the big things that, I'll, that, that like this last six months has taught me. I left my job at Facebook in December of 2018. Uh, I, I, I stopped working after that. So I've been like now one full year, not working. Right. And, you know, it feels great. I have been working in real estate and, you know, and building my business, but like, right. You're retired by now working for someone else. You're really doing your own thing. Totally get it. Yep. So, so I've been focused on taking my profits from real estate instead of living off of them or instead of saving them, like really depleting savings in essence, I have reserves, savings and reserves are very different. Very, yes very different. Like I think investors need to know this, like savings is like, you're going to go use this to reinvest into something. It's right? sitting on the sideline, taking a water break. <laughs> exactly. Or, uh, or, and reserves is like in the event of, right. Yep. It's best way to put it. Yep. In the, in the event, of, right. So, um, those are two, two, two major differences. So the way that's the way that I see it. So, the, so my savings, I've just been like, rolling it back in constant. I got my reserves, you know, a couple hundred grand in reserve. I'm like, all right, like that's good. But my reinvestment is like, just throw it in. So yep. I went from, you know, maybe in, I was making good money in tech, right? I was making a couple hundred grand in tech. In, in tech, uh, my cap was, you know, mid-level person, right? Like in a company, like I wasn't like a VP or anything. Like that. Right. And so like, I wasn't making a million dollars at one of those companies, which even though those guys, like they make a million dollars, they have that lifestyle and it costs them not and more. Right. So they, they got to drive the Tesla to be next to the guys that drive the Teslas that actually make the $5 million. They only make, they're more. just scaling their expenses get higher as well, as well as their income does just like anyone. That's right. They're just, they're, they're broke. So <laughs> um, it's, it's the most amazing thing. Like they, they're literally broke. And, and so you, you know, I, and I'm, I'm here, this like little guy that's like not, anywhere near this like VP level person, right? Not next to a VP in, in level of experience. And I'm like literally like taking a parachute and jumping out of, you know, my, uh, my career and just going into, into real estate. And anyways, the, um, 
the point is that by reinvesting, I went from only making a capped amount per month, like, you know, my, my salary, let's say 25 grand a month from my salary working at these companies Yep. to now making like six figures a month. Right. Yeah, I, I see. I see what you, yeah, going on on Instagram for the mentoring and stuff. It blows my mind. Yeah. It's, and, and that, so like between the mentoring and the cash flow club community, the courses, building a digital brand, you know, eventually it's going to grow into doing stage presence, doing books, things that are going to grow into bigger things, you know. Again, it, it's just, it's scaling, you know, it's scaling. And my social presence is scaling really fast, you know, you know, Nick and, so, uh, so, you know, Nick and Gabe have been really like influential in building my social presence. Yeah. We've just been watching you grow like crazy, like, like wildfire. Like it's literally gone from like a zero account to like a six, almost 60,000 person following now. And yep. monetization off of that is like, it's a ridiculous amount. Right. So I mean, it, it, you're going to get to a point where you almost don't need the real estate to make the money, but it, but you're going to be doubling down. Essentially, you're going to be getting the, the, the different streams of income coming in this month was our, uh, so December, December yep, was the best. December was our first, uh, monetization month of social media other than like the subscription based stuff that we had going on with Cashflow club and whatnot. Um, that was pulling in a decent amount of money. You know, I was pulling in maybe a couple hundred grand a year, yep. but the course, and like the new version of my brand with all of the, you know, the, the larger audience, that first month we started to monetize, like the first month we just activated it, blew away everything else. Like just like absolutely like crushed everything else. Right. Yeah. And so that's the goal. Like just keep, just keep doing that. Yeah. You just know? keep going with the momentum. That, that works. Keep doing it. Like that, that should be what you focus on more than anything else. So like the system in real estate is great. And that's the foundation of in the event of something I need to fall back on. If there's a market correction, if there's anything that happens, like I got read this. Oh, Good. it'll catch. Yeah. Yeah. But the social like scalability is it's infinite. Right. And so well, people want content today. They're tired of seeing the, the, the fakes, the models, the, you know, the, the money, you know what I mean? They want content. They want education, which I find very interesting watching how Instagram's progressed where it used to be strictly a photography a domain or, or platform. And then you get into all these influencers or I, I say quote unquote influencers because they're really not influencing anyone. They're just showing off and they're being fake. And now right. we're in this realm of, of education and discovery where people, they want to take information away every time they open up their phone, which I find very interesting yeah. because I mean, even a year ago, you look at it, you didn't see all this content, all, all of this material coming out of it. It was more, it was more selling you a physical product such as merchandise, things like that. Now you're, you're being sold uh, a program or a mentorship, which I think is great too, because you're, you're just giving more knowledge out. I mean, look, at, we were uh, sitting down at lunch today and somebody that's in multi-level marketing, which is also another like kind of lucrative thing in its own. Very much so. Yeah. So this person's in multi-level marketing and, you know, she's done fairly successful for herself. And, but she's like, I work my ass off. I have to manage a bunch of people that I don't enjoy managing. They're low quality. They're always yeah. turning over. It's a lot of work. Everybody tells you that this is like the work from Wi-Fi thing. And I get it. But at the same time, it sucks because I'm still working. Right. Yep. Like, and I said, look, you just traded jobs. 
Yeah, just, that's all you did. You just traded jobs. Now you're actually 24-7, you know, where mm-hmm. before you could actually leave at 7. If you could get, like, if, what are you passionate about? Like, I, I like nutrition. Like, all right, cool. So you're, you're passionate about nutrition. All right, so like, teach people about nutrition. And then I said, you know, build a course about it. Like, just do something that's 10 videos long and sell it for 100 bucks. Like, or sell a subscription or do something where they're getting meal plans. But think about it this way. You have maybe a couple of dozen thousand followers, right? So if you get a hundred of those people, just a hundred, mm-hmm. to pay you a hundred bucks a month, that's 10 grand. There you go. You don't get to work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's just, it, it is the, again, the highest form of, of passive income for that. I mean, it's a no brainer. Yeah, no, I hear you. So we're going to start to wrap things up here a little bit. And any advice you would have for new investors? People who are just looking to get started, they've got the analysis paralysis, or they're just looking to learn a little more. What do you have for them? Yeah, so I, I discovered this actually over the last like uh, week and a half, right? Where a lot of beginners, they, I, I get beginners asking me questions all the time. Yeah. Um, and the, the first question, the most popular question they ask me is like, can I get into real estate with no money? Or... <laughs> Um, or this other one, which is like, Hey, I have, you know, I've saved up a lot of money or, or when I tell them like, listen, this is how much you need. They come back to me and they say, all right, I need to keep saving. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, if we had a dollar for every time someone asked how to get into real estate with like no money down, we'd be able to buy everything in cash. Oh no, no. 100%. 100%. Yeah. I wouldn't need yeah. the bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, but the, the theme was I need to save. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's like a peeve of mine to hear that, right? Because, um, well, first of all, like you can't invest, like the, the whole term invest. Is to put something in to get a return. That's right. So like you can't go and be like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be an investor, but then how do I get in with zero money down? It's like, right. Yeah. That's not investing. That's taking risk. Right. It's called a gift. <laughs> it's called a gift. Yeah. yeah. Or gambling, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That isn't, but that's, that's, that's not going to really make you like possibly, but like it's, it's highly unlikely that it's going to make mm-hmm. you a return. And, um, you know, and I'll give you an example of somebody that bought some, a property in an auction for like basically nothing, right. They bought it for like, you know, one of those like dollar schemes and they ended up inheriting like a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt basically from that property. <sighs> It was a big problem. And then they had to bank, bank, they had a bankruptcy on that, on that property, which they didn't even own. They didn't even get to see it, you know, because they bought it in an auction. So like, this is what you get when you start to try to do things that really you shouldn't be doing. You should just stick to the plan, the strategy. Yeah. It's a thing most people don't have. One. But the savings concept is what I really want to tell beginners about. And that's that if you are saving money and sacrificing, you're not really saving money. Yeah. All right. Saving money is when you are not sacrificing and you still have money left over. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good because, and again, it gets back to what you're saying earlier, clipping the coupons, you know, just take the, you're almost not living. You're not living. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, if you want to be the, if you want to be happy, mm-hmm. if you want to enjoy the fruits of your labor and do the things that you like, somebody told me like, Oh, I'm going to save, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stop. I asked one of my students, I was like, what are you going to cut out of your day every day to save more, to, to save more money towards your goal, right? Yeah, they're like food and water. <laughs> I'm going to save my coffees. I'm not going to drink my, 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 uh, my Starbucks every morning. That's $5. I'm like, listen, how much is $5 every day for a year? They're like, oh, well, you know, it's uh, 1800 bucks. 
All right. So you're going to, you're going to cut one of your favorite things that you do every yep. single day. That's $5 because you want to save 1800, but what's the 1800 bucks going to do for you at the end of the year? Right. And how many times do you have to save the $1,800 to get into your first deal? Like for years, like it would take you years of saving off that coffee. That means that you didn't get to drink coffee, your favorite coffee. You didn't get to drink it. Right. Like the thing you do every day is the highlight of your day. I, I get the, I'm not going to buy the BMW. I'm going to buy the used Toyota because I'm saving $30,000, right. you know, and, and that's going to get you into the next property. Right. But it, it, it just, it's so true because it almost doesn't make sense. You know, you, you look at it, two items, for example, and this is, you know, not nothing against people and their choices, but you look at like an Apple laptop, for example, versus uh, an older Microsoft computer on Craigslist that you can get. It's only a few hundred dollar difference. That few hundred dollars isn't going to make or break something for you. I get if you're trying to make rent and that's not smart, I get that. But and from an investing standpoint, get the one that you know works better, the one that's going to last longer, the one you know you're going to like for the few hundred dollar difference. I mean, that's just a scenario. You're never, it's penny pinching is not going to get you here. I mean, who, who do you know penny pinched and made their way to a million dollars by doing so? It's, it's like, it's like, it's like I said the other day, I'm like, look, ain't, ain't nobody, you're never going to see somebody that's driving a Ferrari that got rich off of 401k. Like it's just not going to, it's Correct, not, yeah. you're not going to see it. You know, you, you ain't going to be like it, on South beach and this guy's driving down in his Rolls Royce and you're like, yo man, I love your car, dude. Well, how'd you get it? And he's like, well, Bro, I, fire I'm <laughs> cashed out right now. Yeah. It, it's just not realistic. And so that's another method of saving, right? Yeah. And it's, it's forced saving essentially for the dumb, for the dummies. You know what I mean? So it's like unfortunate, but that's the reality of it. And those people are dummies because they're going to falter in a bad market being associated to you know, indexes that may not be there. And, and I'm a controlling person. I like to have the control. You have zero control when you don't get me wrong. I have a Roth IRA. I, I contribute to it because it's tax free for me. I'm so young that it'll be multi millions by the time I'm 59 and a half, but yeah. that's not where bulk of anything is. That's such a small percentage. I forget it's even there. It's on the, it's on the, the farthest back burner there can be having the control, being able to, know exactly what this property is worth, what I can buy it at, what it's going to cost me to put into it. And I'll also know exactly what it's going to be worth at the end of the day. That's, there's something to be said about that. You know, you can't do that with stocks. No, you can't. And you can predict your, you can predict your exact return on these properties down to the penny. You really can't. If you do it right, if you analyze your deals, right. Uh, you, you can, and that, that's just, there, there's the game for you right there. So, so that's the thing, man. Like I, I think if you're a new beginner, saving money shouldn't be a term that you use. It should be, how am I going to make more money? Right. Yep. Like, like what is it that I need to do to make more money? And most people ask me then, then what's the, obviously what's the next question, right? The next question is, well, where's Richard, how do I make more money? Right. Yeah. Like, well then start doing things that you enjoy doing for yourself. It's literally all you have to do. Like you like, to go out on the weekend and clean your car on that Friday or Saturday morning. And you're like, man, I love this shit. Like I'm going to clean my car and detail it. And I'm going to go and drive it around and stuff. Go do that for five people that, that, that weekend. Yeah. Go make a hundred bucks on every car. You just make $500. You just made an extra, you know, a couple grand uh, a month. Yeah. There you go. So let's just say you make $200 in a weekend. You buy 
$5 coffees, you know, seven times, it's the $35 minus the, the hundred, you still profited, you did what you wanted, you made some money. It just makes sense. So no, that's, that's great advice. And I like your, uh, your view on that because a lot of people you do hear out there, Oh, cut the coupons. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, go, go with the bear. Yeah. And I get it. I, I like him, and I find his show very entertaining because I think some people are so blatantly stupid. It blows my mind. It blows my mind, but it's very entertaining, but it, it's a good aspect you have. So where can people find out more about you? Where can they find your, your mentorship program, your cash flow club, a little bit about you or where can they even contact you if they have any questions? Yeah. So I'm it, You'll notice this on all my social media uh, yep. channels. I am not a pusher of my products. No, not at all. Yeah, I, I mean, in the last month, I've probably seen you say something about it maybe twice, to be honest. I go on, all I do, my goal is to just like really give people value, as much yeah. value as possible. And what happens when you do that is something magical. Like people just attract themselves to you. Yep. I want more of that value that you just gave me. So yep. give me more. So um, I say the first the first thing is just follow my socials, right? Like Instagram, like Richard Garcia Official. Go on to Richard Garcia Official. Uh, it's the only one, right? That's gonna have that handle, and you yep. just you just follow. Um, as of today, I think that we have like almost sixty thousand followers right now on that. Nice. Uh, that's gone from just in four months from zero to sixty thousand. Yep. So Great Great growth. And then a lot of good like beginner uh, value there. I would say the next thing is um, YouTube is about to launch. So longer nice. content is about to go out uh, this month. So I got two videos that are going to be popped up. You're going to be forced to come back home and walk some properties. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> I told that. So, uh, so I will. That's fine. And then... So that, that'll be something I think people should definitely follow, you know, because there'll be a lot of good stuff there and you'll get to see me physically in some of these properties. And then for Cashflow Club, like if you are ready to take the next step, right? If you're like, yeah. all right, you know, Richard, like I got to see some of your video content. I really like the strategy that you're putting out there. Um, I do want to build a cash flow system. I do want to build a cash flow system of passive income. You know, I want to live a life like a, like a young guy like you, you know, that doesn't have to work anymore that type of stuff. If that's what you want, then yeah, you go to just cash flow. 31, code. three kids, a wife and a pet house in Columbia. It does it <laughs> with, with the six point, what? $6.7 million portfolio. So you got it. Yeah. yeah you know, I work, Congrats. I work 30 minutes a day, 30 minutes. A there day. you go. And that's only to stay sharp. The rest of the time is like, just to be like, you know, what, 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 what post can I put up on social right now? Yep. Yep. I hear you. You know, so yeah, cashflowclub.co is where you can find the, the course. We have about 300 people in the community right now that are active. And we have more than that that are non-active. We have alumni. And so the community is really like there's two folds in the community. There's the community itself that has beginners, intermediate, and advanced sections where people are learning and they're going through. And all that stuff is free. So it's really just there to help as many people out. It's like almost 300 and change videos. Nice. And, and so it's a lot, it's a lot of content and yeah, anybody, that is. yeah, anybody who gets the course gets all of that for free. And then you're part of this community. It's kind of like a Facebook group, but it's in Slack and you can communicate with everybody in there. There's 300 people. Nice. And then there's another channel and this channel is paid. It's the only thing that's paid, uh, beyond the course and it's a uh, $99 a month 
but what you're getting is curated deals every single week. And we're doing live investor calls where all of the people that are actually looking to pay money, co-invest or you know, buy their own deal, are in this channel and they're doing deal analysis with me weekly. So we're running through actual data through spreadsheets, through the numbers, cash on cash returns, cap rates, uh, the cash flow, the taxes, the, the everything, right? We're going yeah. through all of it and we're doing multiple at a time and then we're actually investing in the deals themselves. Nice. So awesome. That's, uh, and then they get anybody in that community and anybody in that channel gets access to my team, my attorney, my lender, uh, my title, my property manager, um, which is a huge amount of value right there. Huge, huge. That sets you up. It cut, it cuts down 10 years of having to build it yourself. Yep. It, it does. So, well, Richard, I really appreciate your time. Everyone. Thank you for stopping in and we'll see you at the next episode. Take care. Thanks for listening. We hope you took something away from today's episode. For more information, you can find us on Instagram at Dante Belmonte. See you next time.